And now, an ad from Dad. <clears throat> All right, save money on car insurance when you bundle home and auto with Progressive. Can I take these off? All right. What is this? This looks good. Wow. That's well made. Where did you get this? I'm talking to you with the hair. Yeah, where did you get this? It's good stuff. That's solid. That's not veneer. That's solid stuff. Progressive can't save you from becoming your parents, but we can save you money when you bundle home and auto. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discounts not available in all states or situations. Welcome to Creating a Family. Talk about adoption and infertility. On today's show, we will be exploding the myths of adopting from foster care. I think you will really enjoy this show. Here's a sample of what you're going to hear. A majority of Americans still believe that children are in foster care because they've done something wrong, because they're right. juvenile delinquents. Nothing could be farther from the truth. These children are have, have the same hopes and dreams and wishes that any child has. They've just gone through a really rough beginning to their life. I'm Dawn Davenport. I'm the director of Creating a Family. We are the National Adoption and Infertility Education and Support Nonprofit. You can find us online at creatingafamily.org. And, guys, we have some very exciting news. It has been percolating here for some time, and I have now gotten permission to share it. This show, the Creating a Family show, has reached the one million listener milestone. Uh, We are, as you would imagine, thrilled and excited, and we're planning a huge two-week celebration starting this Saturday. That would be September 19th. Uh, and uh, we've got a lot of things planned. One, uh, we've got some special guests coming up. Uh, next week's guest will be Dr. Karen Purvis. She'll be back on the show. We are really thrilled that she wanted to be a part of the celebration. She said she wouldn't miss it for the world, so she's going to be with us talking about uh, um, uh, using attachment parenting to help children who have come from hard places. We, Since it is a party, it, no party would be complete without prizes. So as part of our celebration, we are uh, going to give away four Amazon gift cards, a $500 one, a $200, $250 one, and two $100 ones. I didn't say that very well, but anyway, there's four of them, 500, 250, and two at 100. Uh, and uh, what we're asking is if you have been touched by creating a family in some way, the show or any of our resources, we're asking that you tell us about that. And when you uh, uh, write in your testimonial or your um, experience, you will automatically be entered into a raffle to win one of these four cards. To get more information, you can sign up for our weekly newsletter, which you can find on any page of our website, creatingafamily.org, top right side. Uh, or you could just go to our website on starting on Saturday, and believe me, you will see lots of information about the celebration. <laughs> so... Go there then and uh, share your thoughts and, uh, and enter to win. The Creating a Family radio show is underwritten by our corporate sponsor, Faring Pharmaceutical. Fighting cancer doesn't have to mean a loss of your fertility. If you or a loved one are facing cancer, you may be eligible for no-cost medication through fertility medication, I should add, through the Faring's Heartbeat Program. To learn more, you can go to their website, heartbeatprogram.com, or you can talk to either your oncologist or if you are seeing a reproductive endocrinologist, uh, either of those doctors will be able to give you more information about this program. 
This show, as well as all of the resources provided by Creating a Family, could not happen without the generous support from our gold sponsors, who believe in our mission of providing unbiased education and support to those struggling to create a family. Some of our wonderful sponsors include Hopscotch Adoptions. They are a Hague-accredited adoption agency placing waiting children from around the world, offering home study and post-adoption services as well to residents of North Carolina and New York. We also have Vista Del Mar. They are a licensed, accredited, nonprofit adoption agency with over 65 years of experience helping to create families. They have three adoption programs, a private infant program, a foster care adoption program, and an international program. And we also have Children's Connection, Inc. They are an adoption agency with offices throughout Texas, providing domestic infant adoption, embryo donation adoption, home studies, and post-adoption support to families throughout the United States. Now, those are a few of our gold sponsors, but we also have other sponsors whose generosity allows us to bring you this show. We ask that when choosing an adoption service provider, please consider choosing one from the Creating a Family directories, which you can find on the service provider page of our site. You can search by location, services provided, years in operation, just a host of factors that we think are important when choosing. And by using these directories, you support those who support us, and we thank you. Today we're going to be talking about exploding the myths of foster care adoption. And there are many myths surrounding adopting from foster care. Our guest today to help address these myths is Rita Sorenen. She is the president and CEO of the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption, and she has more than 30 years of experience working on the behalf of abused, neglected, and vulnerable children, providing leadership both on the local level as well as the state and the national level. Welcome, Rita Sorenen, to Creating a Family, or maybe I should say welcome back to Creating a Family. Thank you so much for having me, and congratulations, a million. That's a, that is amazing. Congratulations. You're doing great work. Thank you. I appreciate it. And, as it, and we'll, we'll make this a little bit of a mutual admiration society because I did want to take a moment to say thank you to you and to the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption. You guys do just really, really great work, and you have improved the lives of so many kids in state care. I suspect that most of our audience probably already knows about you and the work you do, but we do reach a lot of people who are new to adoption, so they may not. So I did want to point out that the Dave Thomas Foundation is the one the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption, sorry, is the one that is responsible for the Wendy's Wonderful Kids program, which is uh, a child-centered uh, uh, process for finding homes for uh, specific kids in foster care. And uh, it's really been phenomenal what has uh, what they've done. They've also are responsible for the 100 best adoption friendly workplace list. You go uh, if you're part of our audience, you know that we post that every year uh, uh, throughout our network. So they're responsible for that. They're also um, very re- involved with the National Adoption Day and, and National Adoption Month, which is coming up, my friends, in November. Uh, and they also do grants to many terrific organizations that improve foster care adoption. So you guys are rocking it. I tell you, you do, do great stuff. So thanks, Rita. Oh, thank you, and it's a delight to be here. And, and, you know, this is all about how we do this work together, and so I'm delighted to be on the show again and, and chat about it a little bit. Cool. 
Well, uh, I told you pre-show we had gotten we have received a lot of questions for this show. Um, so I'm going to start with the one that we received the most questions on. I'm going to read a couple. I'm not going to read everything. So if you send in questions, uh, in fact, let me just mention that I, I am not going to read every question that we got because we really got so many for this show, which is good. It means it's a great topic. All right, uh, I'm going to read a question from Kyle, and he, he does a good job of summarizing. It's a little long. I'm going to read the whole thing. He says, my husband and I would like very much to adopt, and our first choice is to adopt from foster care. But after taking the MAP classes, we are seriously questioning whether we are the right people for this challenge. We've made an agreement to each listen to every one of the Creating a Family shows on adopting from foster care, adopting older kids, and the challenging behavior type of shows. This is a param, but I'll read it. I'm loving the ADHD show since I'm married to a man with it. Um, We have finished... Uh, we haven't finished, he says. There's been lots of great material. Thanks so much, Creating a Family. And uh, So he says, we haven't finished, and we are going to reassess when we have finished. I am feeling much more confident now, but when I saw the topic of today's show, I wanted to ask about this. I am not sure if this is a myth or not, but will the behaviors be so challenging that we will regret our decision? Now, before mm-hmm. we talk about that, Rita, let me read a couple more uh, that are along the same line. Lori writes, please address the myth that all kids from foster, from the foster system will be affected by RAD, that's reactive attachment disorder. And then Erica, who is an adoptive mom through foster care of two children, says that she hears all the time from people saying to her, I can't do foster care because the kids will be too hard to raise. Yeah, um, yeah so let's talk about that. I think uh, I, I, perhaps if we had to identify the number one myth, certainly from uh, the questions we received, this one may be the number one myth. So let's talk about that one. Yeah, and it's a great one, and thank you for bringing it up first. You know, it's a little it's a little difficult when we use the word all. It's like saying all toddlers are difficult or all teenagers are trouble. You know, so when we say all f- children from foster care are going to come with all kinds of, you know, things that I, I don't think I'm going to be able to deal with, the reality is children are in foster care for a reason. They've been abused or neglected or abandoned, and those who have been freed for adoption, that abuse um, or that abandonment, Abandonment has risen to such a level that they've been permanently separated from their family of birth. So these children have experienced at some level um, the kind of trauma that no child should experience. Um, In addition, perhaps to the trauma of abuse, that trauma of separation and loss and grief are all issues that surround our children. So I don't want to minimize ever what they've experienced and and the fact that we should, as adults stepping into this process, be very conscious of that, learn as much as we can about what that that means and at what stage the child is in their development and what that might mean. But it shouldn't keep us from saying now, now that I understand that, is it uh, you know, it's too much. I better back away from it. Well, it's it's. But these are children who still need families, who still need the understanding and support of families, who can reach out to um, their social workers, to their community, to the professionals in their community to help them understand specific to this child what has this child experienced in their journey, both through their with their birth family, their journey through foster care, and now their journey through this adoption uh, process, and how can I be a a, a, a positive 
um, proactive part of that journey. Um, it does take a lot of internal, I think, thinking and, and, and looking at who I am and who my family is and what am I willing to do to be an aggressive advocate for this child, no matter what the child's needs are. But I would never say all children from foster care have deep challenges and it's going to be a problem, or all children from foster care have this. Each child is individual, and a good agency will work through that with a potential foster and adoptive parent, help them understand what the child has experienced, help them understand where the resources are to connect to during this process and after the process of adoption. But the reality is there are no guarantees with birth children either. Um, you know, if our if we have a birth child who has um, physical or emotional or 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 mental challenges, we don't we don't say, oh, it's too much trouble, I can't deal with it. We do everything possible to surround that child with all the resources and help um, that 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 they can um, that we can muster. So we just need to do the same thing with these children who come from foster care, but not lump them into categories. Really look at the individual child and what the individual child's needs and journey has been to this point. And, and directly to talk about Kyle's question about will they regret the decision, um, yeah. I have been immersed lately, and um, uh, we're uh, at, uh, here at Creating a Family. We're gearing up for National uh, Adoption Month. And one of the things, we're, and so let me mention actually to our audience, we're going to be starting uh, now, actually in September, we're going to be starting a series uh, of blogs on foster care adoption, myths and realities and things such as that. We've got a lot planned, so uh, make sure that you're signed up for our newsletter to receive notice of all the blogs coming out and then culminating in uh, quite a bit that we'll be doing during National Adoption Month. So I've been reading. In fact, we're working on an infographic right now. And uh, I just read a, a summary from the National Survey of Adoptive Parents, which was specifically talking, or the, the part that I was working with, was specifically talking with parents who adopted from foster care. And one of the questions they asked these parents was, basically, would you do it again? Uh, knowing what you know now, would you do it again? Mm -hmm. And I think what's important to know is that 95% of the parents who, and this is a very, very large sample, well over 2,000. Right. Okay, so this is a good, you know, we, we talk a lot here about research, and we talk about how you can tell when the good good studies versus, you know, kind of, you know, when bad studies. Well, the, the, the sample size here was large. 95% said they, they would definitely or most likely make the decision again. So I really think, Kyle, that probably addresses directly uh, the question of whether parents who've, who've walked this path find it uh, to be one that is rewarding and one that they would do again. I agree with that, and that's that's brilliant. Thank you for, for citing that statistic, because that's exactly what we hear on an anecdotal level, and we get hundreds and hundreds of calls and emails and conversations on social media here. We hear that, and I, I could mirror that percentage, that 90%, 95% of the time, families are, are, are filled full of joy and wonder at what they've done. Yes, they'll hit bumps along the way, and, 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 they, and they reach out for help when they do, thankfully. But and, and I think as you're going through the process, too, Kyle, that the, the reality is you need to be your own best advocate, too. What what am I willing to, to do? How am I? Am I comfortable with reaching out if I need help? Am I comfortable with, um, you know, the kind of challenges that parenthood presents to me, not just foster care parenthood, but parenthood presents to me? Um, and, and doing that, that deep internal thinking while you really advocate for yourself. Help me, you know, talking to your caseworker. Help me understand what this is. Help me understand what this process is. Talk to me about this. Show me where the resources 
resources in my community are so that you come fully prepared and regret is the last thing that's on your mind as you continue to go through the process. And, and I'm going to leave that. It's a great lead into the next question, which is one that um, really is, uh, um, is preaching to the choir with, with me and, and with us here at Creating a Family. I may mis- be mispronouncing her um, la- her name. Roche, I think is how she pronounces it. If I'm mispronouncing it, I apologize. She says, I'm an adoptive mom of three from foster care, a sibling group of two and then a separate 11-year-old. I love my kids and would say it has been a good experience, but what we need is help after the adoption. Our caseworker was good for a short while, but basically after the adoption is finalized, you feel like you are on your own and that you are the only one struggling. The kids are in therapy, and that is covered by our stipend. But parents who adopt older kids and kids who have been abused need more help after the adoption. We can sometimes get respite care for our kids, but that has a lot of problems, too. I know of two adoptions that have fallen apart, and I think if they had had more help, they would have stayed together. Um, And that is a, a topic that creating a family feels it's it's really one of our main focuses uh, going forward is post-adoption, both education and support. We, we say that's where the, you know, when the child is in your home and the honeymoon is over, that's when the rubber meets the road. So, yeah, let's, let's talk about post-adoption support because I do think that's an area that uh, that needs work. It, it does, and and it has always been a con, uh, an issue. I think a conversation. There's never enough, um, but I think it's getting better. It has become a much more robust policy conversation, both in D.C. and at the state level. Um, uh, I think um, decision makers understand, and that's from agency administrators to to legislators understand that. It's it's resource dependent, you know. It's it, it we've got to get those resources circled around families so that they don't um, uh, fall back on uh, that horrible, horrible um, result of a dissolution of an adoption. You know, we shouldn't put any family in that position ever. But we understand sometimes the desperation that some families have. Um, so yes, post adoption resources need to be there. Everything from you know something as simple as there's new legislation pending about a refundable adoption tax credit so that the that full amount that's available to families can come back to families. Everything from that to um, a qualified adoption competent mental health providers that are in every community, not just some communities, so that when families do reach out and take that step and say, I do need a little bit of help, they get a qualified professional that understands the unique dynamics of adoption and foster care and trauma that these children have experienced. So we're getting better. We've supported some great programs, I think, at a national level that are they're doing a better job of getting those resources together at an evidence-based level and getting them out to the community but much much more needs to happen absolutely you know and it's it's um it's an interesting thing and, and one that we've spent a lot of time here thinking about as i know you have as well it's you know it's no we don't have the hook to require anything after the adoption is complete right. and qu- and right. quite frankly families are are time stressed at that point uh so it's how do we create resources that are easy to access and that cater to different time requirements and times availability and are uh supportive and fun to use and and so how do we how do we create these resources and then how do you get them how do you get the word out how do you get them into the hands of the people before they give up um, that's exactly it. 
Yep, yeah. and we've got to do a better job at the agency level when when families are going through the adoption process to get them connected at that point. After is too late. You know, it's just we need to make it just a natural part of here's what's available to you. Here, here are the parent groups available in your community. The, the, the parents shouldn't have to work too hard when they're back at the agency level going through sometimes 12, 18, 24 months of interaction with the agency. That's the best time to get them connected to resources to, to at least get them, you know, in hand, here's what you may need. You may never need this, but if you do, here's what here's where you can access. right. And 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 online resources. Let them know these are these are the support exactly. groups. These are the active ones. Here's ones that yes. you know there are people who are. And um, yeah, I I yeah. So Rache, we agree with you a hundred percent. I do think <laughs> we're making progress. I do. I, I think we have a long way to go. I think we've made much more progress in pre-adoption education. Um, it, it, and, and for adopting from foster care, the education there has always been strong. But the um, yes, we're, we're making progress. But we've we hear you, Rache. We hear you. Um, here's a question from Robin. She wants to know if there are laws that limit the time that children have in foster care. Hmm. Technically, yes. <laughs> I was wondering how you were going to answer that one. <laughs> and, uh, and we all know yeah. technically, yes, that their laws are perfect because they said, you know, we've had great federal legislation state that, that's been enacted at the state level. Um, and, and, you know, you can go online and find exactly what those laws are and what the timelines are. And, 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 and the laws are always created because we see such an, an injustice in a system where children linger in care and move from home to home. And so we fix it with legislation, but there's always an out. You know, there's always a, a somehow a, a an exit route to, to what the law says. Um, and so we tend to still allow children to linger in care much too long. Um, we've, we've recently limited the, 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 what, what used to be called long-term foster care um, and limited that at a federal level with, the, uh, you know, children can't be put in that designation. And it's in, in many states it's called planned permanent living arrangement or another planned permanent living arrangement where we would throw kids into that designation, which was pretty much legal limbo. It would allow children to grow up and age out of care. And and federal law limited that now children under 16 can't be put in that. But we always seem to find an out to that. And so I think the best way to, yes, we need to enact great legislation that um, really respects the, 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 the very short timeline that childhood gives us, right? We only have 18 years to do right by children, and that goes very quickly. But we also have to put in place best practices at the agency level, at the caseworker level, and we have to change attitudes at the judges, you know, at the bench where judges make decisions and um, in in classrooms where teachers make decisions and in offices where therapists make decisions. We have to we have to continue to drive attitudes that that understand a sense of urgency that childhood is fleeting. We must give these children homes and it's not acceptable to allow them to grow up in foster care or age out of foster care. So it's not just the legislation, it's attitudes and it's best practices so that when people really do believe in that, what, what's, what's the practice here to make that happen? And that's why we created programs like Wendy's Wonderful Kids. We, we had to offer a best practices so caseworkers could say, I believe children shouldn't age out of care, but I don't know how to make that happen. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, specifically, I, what do I do to, and that's been the beauty of that program, is um, um, they're, they're very specific things and ways to find homes for children that used to be considered, um, and I have, I'm using air quotes here, unadoptable. Right, right, right. right. Okay. 
And our next question was interesting. We got two questions that are in the direct opposite of each other, close to the direct opposite of each other. <laughs> One from Hannah. She said, uh, she wonders if this is a myth. She says, if you want to adopt from foster care, then you should not become a foster parent. Uh, and then we got the semi-opposite question from Rael, and it is, I've heard that the only real way to adopt from foster care is to first become a, to first become a foster parent. My husband mm-hmm. and I don't want to foster because we don't want to go through losing a child. So, yeah. okay, you're going to set us straight here. What is, what is it? Should you first foster uh, if you want to uh, adopt from foster care, or uh, should you in, emphatically not foster if that's not what you want, and you can still adopt, adopt from foster care? I love these questions because if you're in this business long enough, and you know, Dawn, you see the pendulum swing and you see attitudes change. Uh, 20 years ago, if you were a foster parent and you said, wow, you know what, This I have bonded with this child. It looks like this child is going to be freed for adoption. I'd be interested in adopting this child. You would immediately have that child removed from your family because the, the tone at that time in, in child welfare was, if you're a foster parent, your job is to foster, and, and our job is to f- figure out if the child should go home or if the child should be adopted. And if you're moving toward adoption, then you're not helping us work to get this child home. But that was 20 years ago. And what child welfare wisely realized was some of the best families are the families that have fostered these children who understand what they've gone through and when that child is freed for adoption are right there ready to adopt. And so there are there are, there are a couple of venues available to families now. Some families go into the child welfare system and say, I only want to foster. I, I'm not interested in adopting. I just want to be a foster parent. And so you need to make that known to the agency. Others say, I only want to adopt. I, I'm, I'm not interested in fostering, like the year one um, uh, caller said. I'm not interested in, uh, in fostering. I just would like to adopt. And so agencies will train these families to adopt. But many families go in saying, I, I'm not certain. I want to help a child. I, I certainly want to be a foster parent, but at some point I might want to adopt as well. And, and sometimes agencies call those foster-to-adopt families, or they just train them as both. You know, that we understand that this dynamic, we know that 60% of children who are adopted from foster care are actually adopted by a family that has either fostered them or has been in that loop while they've been in foster care. They're the, a prime resource for these children. They trust, they bond, they understand. So... I guess to answer the question, yes, you can adopt directly from foster care and you just made you make those wishes known to the agency as you're going in and you get trained as an adoptive family. Is it better to foster first before you adopt? It depends on your circumstances. It gets you in that loop of understanding what this child welfare system is, the complexities and the challenges of, of government systems, right? It gets you in that loop and so you, you, you begin to get that flow and maybe you understand it better if you foster for a year or two and then move toward adopting. Um, it really is dependent. Thank goodness the systems are now open to all of those options. Um, there are still some lingering attitudes out there that if a foster family says, I might be interested in this child, maybe they're not going to be doing right by the child. But for the most part, those those attitudes are gone. And I think child welfare agencies understand that this these are qualified parents that get trained by our agency. They can help us with children when they need just foster care, but they can also help us when, when we're looking for adoptive families. And the reality is, in the vast majority of cases, when a child's plan changes to adoption from reunification, we always remind people that the goal of foster care is to heal birth families, heal biological families so that the children can go home. But if that doesn't happen, 
and the decision has been made that parental rights will be terminated, usually, in fact, I think the vast majority of cases, the foster parents are approached first about if they want to adopt, if there's not extended family, let me add that, if there's not extended family, um, biological family that's, uh, that is interested. So that uh, it opens perhaps more doors. Uh, would you agree with that one? Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. yes. And you're absolutely right. And I apologize for not first stressing that the first best place for a child is in their in their biological home. We want all children to be able to go home, but we they need to be safe and nurtured there. And and on those right. occasions when that can't happen, then let's make the next best step. Hopefully, that's extended family, grandparents or cousins or aunts or uncles. And if that's not available, then who better than perhaps the foster parent that has seen them through some of the most difficult times in their life? That removal from home, um, the trauma they've experienced, that foster parent's poised to be that next best uh, family if, if everything else has not come through. And it's one less disruption in the child's life. Um, exactly. They're already in that house. You know, so thank goodness. Thank goodness we're not living where 20 years ago, as you point out, um, that was discouraged. You are listening to Creating a Family. Today we're talking about the myths of foster care adoption with Rita Sorenen with the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption. Creating a Family has one of the largest adoption and infertility communities on the social networks, and they would be even better if you would join us. There are three ways to connect with us on Facebook. You can, of course, uh, uh, connect with me, dawn.davenport1. You can also like our page, which is facebook.com slash family. Or you could join our very active, we're well over 6,000 members now, so we would love to have you. It's an active, really fun, supportive group. It's a support group. It is a closed group on Facebook. To find that one, you go to facebook.com slash groups slash family. Or to be honest, the easiest way is just type in the words creating a family in the Facebook search box. The page will pop up and the group will pop up. You can like the page and join the group. I did say it is a closed group, so you will have to request to join. We are also on Pinterest and at Twitter. Uh, and to connect with us there, we, we go by Creating a Family there. So just look us up there at, under Creating a Family. On Pinterest, we have over 30 boards, and it's really, it is a fun place to hang out for both inspiration, a few giggles, um, and as well as education. So all of that is in, uh, it's, it's a fun place to hang out. All right. Um, I was really glad, we, and I was kind of surprised, I don't know why, but we got two questions on this, uh, talking about adopting out of birth order. Uh, Brooke asked if it was important to maintain birth order when you're adopting in general, but she specifically mm-hmm. said from foster care. And Megan said, ask, is adopting out of birth order allowed? And by the way, Megan is from Canada, and so she said if possible, if we could, if there's any differences between Canada and the U.S., to mention that. So this is actually a topic that... Uh, um, Creating a family has a lot of information on, so it's, it's a topic I really find interesting. So yeah, let, let's let's open it up. What are um, what are the, the rules, if there are some, on adopting at a birth order, and then kind of what's the um, what's the general consensus on if you should or shouldn't. Yeah, and I, I, I'm, I'd love to hear from you too. But there are no there are no laws in Canada or rules in Canada or the U.S. that I'm aware of that prohibit someone from adopting out of birth order. Um, uh, certainly, again, we go back to family circumstances, and and uh, families will know and understand their the children who are already in the home best. Um, and if bringing uh, an older child in and you have younger children doesn't feel right, you're going to know that as a parent. If the reverse is true, you're going to know that. Um, I'm sure there's 
research behind it that, you know, it, 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 it can create some challenges, um, you know, particularly with um, you, you bring a child in that suddenly and they were, they were, their identity in the family was the oldest and that gets, that gets interrupted. It's up to the family to really work on um, how each child is unique and, and we understand that this may be a disruption in how you're thinking, but, um, I, you know, it, I think it's really dependent on the family, the circumstances, understanding the, the particular children that it will impact and then going from there. But Dawn, I'd love to hear what, what, what you all um, say on this. Well, you know, it's an interesting thing, and, and we, we talked about changes in uh, philosophy, of uh, which, you know, we are in a pendulum, whether we like it or not, and it, yeah. it, certainly in the past, and not even, the, and even currently, and some people feel this way, uh, some uh, adoption therapists and, and adoption agencies and, and counselors and researchers still continue to, to uh, recommend against adopting out of birth water. We've talked to a sure. lot of experts on, on this topic, and it seems to be we're coming now to the opinion that we really have to look at that the individual family and the children with within the family. We did a uh, we interviewed uh, Dr. David Brodzinski, who is I kind of call him the godfather yeah. of, of all adoptions psychology. He was he is himself. yeah, he is. and and we interviewed him on this topic exclusively. And I I honestly didn't know what he, where he was going to come out on it, so I was really interested. I, I will. I tell you what. I'll put a link to that in the blog tomorrow uh, uh, for uh, people to easily find that uh, that interview. And he uh, he was just had. And we've we've talked with other professionals. I should add on this topic as well. The we have to look at uh, the uh, the reality is that that when we're adopting older children, they will often be brought into families that mm-hmm. that they will disrupt birth order. Not always, and not always is it in the best interest of the child being adopted, but or, or the children in the family. But there are definitely some things that families can do. We've done surveys of families who have uh, adopted what they would consider successfully adopted out of birth order and are happy with that decision. And we've gotten tips from them and we have tip sheets on how to do it successfully. One of the biggest concerns is particularly if a child has been sexually abused, the child that is being adopted into the yeah. family, there is a concern that the child will act out sexually uh, against children already in the family. Um, and, I, and, and not to paraphrase uh, Dr. Brodzinski, but his point was that you don't go in assuming that, uh, that if it does happen, there are definitely things that as parents you can do to protect the children in the family. It's important to know that going in, uh, but not all children who have been sexually abused act out sexually. Uh, uh, and we actually have a, a number of resources specific to parenting children who either have been or may have been sexually abused. So the, I guess the bottom line is exactly what you said. That there's no, there's certainly no law against it, uh, and you need to look uh, and get resources, get educated up front, set up some uh, protections that exist, uh, set up some protections uh, until you know how uh, all the children are going to do, and pay particular attention to the children whose place in the family is being disrupted if you're uh, but but let's be honest even if you adopt within birth order your youngest child's place is going to be disrupted as well uh, so right. there's no way right. to have a child whether by birth or adoption that you don't displace somebody so it can certainly be done exactly. that you go in with your eyes open all right yeah exactly exactly yeah um here's another great question from mara she says can i reasonably foster and maintain a career a career. I've heard there are so many appointments and visits that you need to be available days to drive the kids around. And let me go ahead and read the second question because it's a little similar. 
Uh, this is from Laura. She says, I'm a single black woman who works full-time. I also have limited family near, living nearby. I want to adopt from foster care, but I worry that I won't get chosen because I'm single and don't have a huge support system and I have to work. They're a little different, but let's go ahead and talk about both of those together. Um, can you adopt if you have a career? And, and are there so many appointments that you will be um, uh, not able to continue your career because you will be devoting too much time uh, driving kids to different appointments. Yeah, again, these are such great questions. Thank you for letting me be a part of this. Um, you know, we we actually, be, you mentioned earlier, we um, have a program called Adoption Friendly Workplace Program here at the office that where we encourage employers to add benefits to their workplace for adoptive parents. This year, as we were doing surveys, we also asked about employers' policies about foster parents, and we found some, some great information that um, 27% of the, the employers that we have in our list offer paid leave for foster parents. Um, so foster and adoptive parents um, who work are recognized in the workplace in, a, in, in growing numbers. And I think our best advice to, to families when they ask these kind of questions is go to your employer first. Find out if you don't already know the tone or if you don't already know if there are benefits or, or, or not even those hard benefits that you can quantify, but sort of those soft benefits. Are you going to put up with the fact that I've got to have a little bit of flexibility here. Go to your employer. Be honest and say, this is what I'm doing. This is this may have some, uh, you know, some appointment challenges that I'm going to have to do because I want to be committed to my either foster child or adoptive child. Um, what's your what's your what's your tone on this? Um, and that way, everyone goes in again with eyes wide open, both the employer and the employee. But really, check about benefits because a growing number of employers understand that foster parents are in the workplace. They're going to need you know an hour here or two hours there or a day here in order to accommodate the the, the sometimes um, haphazard um, appointments or needs of, of the children that they're taking care of. And most employers, well, I probably shouldn't say most, the ones that we talk to uh, understand that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and they're willing to be flexible about that within reason. Absolutely. Yeah. So yes, can if you have a career, can you adopt? Yes. If you have a career, can you can you foster? Yes. But you want to make sure that you can also give the child the kind of time. If you travel a lot, for example, I've thought of adopting a lot. In you know, I've uh, but I travel so much right now. It's probably not a good choice for my family. I would be gone too much to really pay attention the kind of attention that that any child would need. So you know, looking at your circumstances, can you give the child the kind of time that they need, and will your employer be flexible as well? You know, and let me, um, I'll throw out some things that, that we've talked about in the support group when we went in the foster care discussions. Um, keep in mind that last statistic I saw, very close to, to 90% of children adopted from foster care come with a stipend, a monthly stipend, to help yes. offset some of the cost. And you wouldn't, this wouldn't be a, the the I, perfect solution for every appointment, but you can hire, you can use that stipend to hire somebody to drive your kids to the more mundane ones, and there are certainly some that you would want to be going to yourself, uh, but that's that's a solution that I've heard of. I've also heard of people negotiating uh, with, for a subsidy, uh, for, for the, when they're adopting, negotiating as part of the package that they get, uh, 
a, a driver where there is somebody yeah. who is available uh, to help out two uh, two parents or, or a single parent where both parents where, where the, all parents are working, whether they be single right. or married. So that's another right. uh, creative solution. Now again, it's not. There are certainly some appointments that that only a, a parent should be at. But there are others and uh, that you don't, and, and apparently that has worked out well for some people. So, And that's a great idea. And the answer to the specific question, yes, single parents who work can adopt. Again, it's just putting in place those safeguards for yourself and the child. And I love that, that the creative solution you just talked about, that, that makes sure that it doesn't become just an extra burden on everyone. Um, it's it's about thinking ahead of time so that so that um, it, things can, can go... Uh, at least as 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 smoothly as possible. And you know, and, and I can't tell you the number of people, and in particular, I'm thinking of our single moms by choice that we have a, a lot, a number of, who have made decisions to move back closer to extended family, so yes. that they have more support network. I realize that is not an option for everyone, and I'm not suggesting, Laura, that that's an option for you. But I, I just uh, I find it interesting that even women who have not thought about that before, once they become parents. Um, uh, become to appreciate more. It takes a the, the old it takes a village approach. So um, exactly. while we are talking about who can adopt, let's go ahead and expand that to the LGBTQ community and older parents. You know, there's been a lot in the news, not not so much recently, but in the past. Although recently there was a state, there was a discussion about a state. Um, so is it possible for uh, same uh, sex couples or our uh, gay and lesbian parents? Uh, to adopt in uh, through foster care in all the states. Yes, now it is right. Um, <laughs> again, it's it's law versus implementation, and we've seen some things in the news where it, it can get challenging um, at at all levels. Um, but but uh, I think that the the good news is that I think um, uh, the LGBT community has been in there and in full force looking to adopt and looking to foster for quite some time and just depending on the state or the or the county or the circumstance um, really at a practice level whether or not agencies have embraced their willingness to step forward um, now it's 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 um, with with legal marriage um, comes legal adoption as well for for both for the, for the married couple um, and and for single um, parents as well so um, I think the doors are wide open sometimes it, at a practice level, it, it still can be challenging. What about age limits for adoptive parents? Yeah, you know, older older folks can adopt. People that have already raised families and are looking to to maybe still have children in their household, um, absolutely. I, there really are no age limits. Uh, the reality is an agency will probably look at a, 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 an older, older um, uh, uh, family, and I, by older, Dawn, help me, you know, 70 or so, and say, hmm, maybe not an infant. <laughs> you know, maybe not an know, infant, but... <laughs> <laughs> I know, but but technically, yeah, there are no age limits internationally. There tend to be, but but domestically, no, um, there are no age limits. If you're if you're healthy and, and qualified and can support this child, that's what agencies look at. Well, and keep this in mind: you might be adopting a 15 year old. So right. even if you are even 70, I'm not suggesting yeah. that, but let's say 65, yeah. you're going to feel like you're, but if you're adopting a 15-year-old, that would be the equivalent of having, you know, had this child when you're 50, which granted that is, you know, older, but still. Uh, so we have to look at the age of the child you are adopting as well. 
Absolutely. Uh, and old, we say older and wiser, right? The older yeah, we get, yeah. perhaps the more we know, a little more patience. And so children that are the, the teenagers that are coming into the household, frankly, uh, a, a, a 50, 60-year-old may have a little more patience for and understanding about the dynamics that this child is going through as well. Exactly. Yes. You are listening to Creating a Family, talk about adoption and infertility, and we are so glad to have you with us today. We're talking about the myths of foster care adoption with Rita Sorenen with the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption. We primarily keep in touch with our audience through our weekly e-newsletter. We have two of them, one for adoption and one for infertility. We let you know about the latest developments in adoption as well as the upcoming week's blog and show topics. So please sign up for our newsletter on any page of our website, top right side of every page. We have a question that... uh, I have heard, and I'm. I was glad we got it. It's a hard question. It's a frustrating question to me. I, at least, but that's. I don't know whether her name is Dia or Dia. I'm going to pronounce it Dia. Prior to being matched, we had made many inquiries on children from our our home state and out of state. Sometimes multiple emails or inquiries. We never received one response. Many of those children are still available. Why is it that with 100,000 children here with no families, there seems to be a disconnect between potential adoptive parents and the social workers. I know of other people from my original MAP class. By the way, MAP is the uh, one of the two primary uh, foster care adoption education uh, classes that are required to be taken. She says, I know of many other people from my original MAP class that this also happened to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I we anecdotally hear that. Um, yeah, uh, particularly with um, adopting uh, out of state, so uh, our children who have been on photo listings. So, um, what do you hear that as well? I'm curious. We do, and I'm a pretty even-keeled person, but nothing makes me angrier than um, bad customer service in child care. Yes. I couldn't agree with you more. (laughs) I mean, there's no, no, no. I mean, we could talk all all day about this. There's there's no excuse for ignoring a family that steps forward and asks for help, asks for, is interested in adopting a child. There's no excuse for it. I will hear that we, you know, we don't don't have enough staff, we don't have enough resources. Well, then close your doors. If you can't do this job, don't be in this business because there's no worse insult to a family than a lack of response when what we're saying on this show and so many others is we need adoptive families. We need foster families. They take the step to step to, 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 to offer themselves and then they don't get a response. It's unconscionable to me. So we do a lot because we're a national nonprofit public charity. We not only raise awareness about this issue, but we make grants to organizations and we hold those grantees accountable for not only getting the job done that the grant asks them to do, but to really look at themselves and say, are you are you providing resources and answers to families who step forward? Do you have a good customer service? It's critical in this work. We cannot put children on hold because we can't answer an email or answer a phone. It's just unconscionable. You know, we have, um, not to belabor the point, but we've heard this question enough that we created a resource on uh, uh, top ways to get your caseworker to respond. I mean, I love that. And it's uh, it's a very popular resource. <laughs> um, you know, how you ratchet it up without getting, you know, without trying to go over people, you know, just trying to, yeah, yeah. And I, yeah, amen. You're preaching to the choir yeah. on that one. So, yes, it's still an issue, but we keep working on it, all of us. And thank you for that resource. That's brilliant. Yeah. Um, 
and, and again, I will try. I will link to that in tomorrow's blog. Or, yeah. Um, uh, we got a couple of questions on: Is it possible to adopt an infant from foster care? So take that one. Sure, it's possible. Um, the, the reality is the majority of children in foster care waiting to be adopted are older. And by older, we mean, you know, eight or older. Um, typically, infants get um, um, taken care of fairly quickly, or sometimes infants are a part of a sibling group. So, um, you know, uh, if, if a family is willing to take a sibling group and there may be a five-year-old and a two-year-old and an infant, then that might be the case. Or, you know, again, sometimes the infants that come into care are there because they are born to substance-addicted mothers. Um, and so there may be some challenges with a child who's been exposed to substances in utero, um, and if a family's willing to, to work through that. But there aren't a lot of infants that tend to linger in foster care. Um, but yes, it's possible. It's just the majority of children waiting to be adopted are children, who, you know, both preschool age, school age, and older. And one thing I would add to that is with infants, uh, I, I think the vast majority, if not all of them, are generally placed with uh, foster families first. And there we we got the, we had the yeah. earlier question about do I need to be a foster parent to adopt? Most of the younger children are first placed uh, with foster parents uh, because they're again we're working with birth families to heal them yeah. so that children can go back and and uh, many of them it, it do come with the issues of of um, prenatal exposure or or parents who are are battling uh, addiction so that's an example where um, if that's something um, that you are, are interested in, and, and keeping in mind that perhaps opening up to the idea of a sibling group where one of the children is an infant but some of the others are, are, are slightly older. Um, I will also, I keep thinking of things to link to in tomorrow's blog. It's going to be a big one, guys, so make sure you tune in and get that blog. Uh, it's going to, we have a, um, a fact sheet on surprising facts about adopting an infant from uh, foster care. I can't remember how many facts. It's like nine surprising facts or something. I can't remember the number. But anyway, mm -hmm. I'll, I will put that as well because um, I was actually surprised by some of the information that we found when compiling that. Um, she mentioned, uh, uh, Dia mentioned uh, adopting out of state. And, and I'm curious about this as well. How easy is it to adopt uh, from foster care in another state? We tell people all the time that they can adopt, uh, particularly if the child is already legally free and, and not a fostering situation. But what's the process? And it just seems to me that it's easier in theory than it is in practice. Yeah, and again, you're right. That's exactly it, policy versus practice. You know, there is children who are adopted across state lines have to go through what's called the Interstate Compact for Children um, so that the sending and receiving states have all kinds of paperwork and um, who pays for what and, and how does this child cross the state lines. Depending on the state, it can be easier than other states, and some states are very complex. Um, so, uh, again, there, there and it, it is typically a, a separate group of people that, that manage the Interstate Compact. There are all kinds of resources online if you just look up Interstate Compact for Children, or I bet, Dawn, you may have a link to it that you can include in the blog. But it will help walk you through what this Interstate Compact issue is because that's where the clog happens. It's at the paperwork. It's at the, the caseworker who's 
in charge of this in the agency. It typically moves to a different person when it's an interstate. So, yes, and that challenge usually comes up when we're looking at online profiles of children and they live in a different state than, than the one that I'm in, and that's where we begin to get some of those challenges. So, um, it's I good see that if, as well. Yeah. Since it comes up when people are looking at some of the larger photo listing sites yes. and they yeah. then they come to us and say, you know, I've tried to inquire, and and I also think there's, uh, probably, and I don't know this, but there's. It seems to me there's probably more hassle for the sending state or the sending ca- the caseworker um, if yeah. the child is is matched with a family out of state. So I wonder if they don't either consciously or subconsciously continue to look for just you know the, the easier solution for them. I'm not sure if that's yeah. true though. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's right. And and again, there there are sometimes payments attached to sending or receiving, and who wants to give up getting the payments? Um, right. Some that yeah. that's more subtle, you know, and no one will ever admit to that. Um, right. So I think it it it's it's in and again, an adopted family's best interest to learn as much as possible about the interstate uh, issues, and then be well armed with and and be ready to advocate um, if that's you know if they see the that's the child I want, but but it, that child lives in South Carolina and I live in in Maine, um, you know, see. see how we can get that going um, quickly. Rita, do you know of any specific resources that we could include to help families? Because we don't really have any specific resources to help families navigate how to advocate for themselves uh, to get a child out of state um, placed with them. If yeah, what any- I will do is I'll send you what I what I have, and then if you want to include that in a link on your website or in your blog, that would be okay. great. I know yeah. there there have been some recent, there's some talk, there have been some tests over the past few years with a number of states of how to really streamline that interstate process, and that's still sort of in the testing phase, so I can get information on that to you, okay. um, yeah. as well as I, I'm sure Adopt US Kids, and I'll have to go up and look, has probably some pretty good information up there, too, but I, absolutely, I'll okay. get those to you. Okay, great. Thanks. Okay, here's a question from Liz. She says, we are thinking about adopting from foster care. Thanks, thanks creating a family to helping open our eyes to this option since we first found out about you through an, inter- oh, through an international adoption group. We have been looking at a few files, and it seems that most of the kids have this long list of diagnoses. Diagnoses. Are foster kids overdiagnosed? And here's a related question we have from Allison. She said, uh, why does the system keep over-medicating foster kids? What are they doing to make sure kids aren't given meds that they don't need? Actually, that isn't a question. That was more of a statement from Allison, but um, we'll rephrase that, Allison. I'm going to put that in the, uh, uh, do you think that uh, children are over-medicated, foster kids are over-medicated? So, yeah, can we talk about that, the diagnoses and, and and related is that sometimes you see the long list of medications that children are on, and particularly for behavioral issues, and it's quite frightening. It is frightening, and I'm neither a doctor nor a, a, a psychologist or psychiatrist, but I can tell you, based on being in this business for, for a long time and, and the, the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people we come in contact with, we hear all the time, I, I adopted this child, and they were on the, you know a, a, a drawer full of medications and had uh, you know a, a, a long case file full, full of diagnoses that kind of scared us, but we went ahead. 
you know, two years after this child's been in our home, they're on none of the medications or way fewer. And when they said this child had a, a learning disorder, quite honestly, they're thriving in school. So, so many times, so many of what gets diagnosed um, as as an issue is really when, if people, if if the right people had looked at it, is not a, a medical diagnosis, but a, a result of the trauma they've experienced, the moves they've experienced, the grief they've experienced, and so. At some level, that's got to come out in a child, right? Um, and it gets diagnosed and it gets medicated rather than understanding this is a this is a point in time reaction to what this child is experiencing. I'm not saying that sometimes children do have severe medical needs or severe emotional needs that do need that higher level of either medication or or um, um, uh, higher care. But so many times we we do a quick default to medicating what is a reaction to a stressful traumatic environment and not a medically diagnosed a situation. Yeah. I and you know this it it strikes me when I I hear this um the whole issue of overmedication. This is a classic reason that children need parents. Children yeah. need advocates. Children need somebody when the doctor says let me give them this you know medication for, to stand back and say wait a minute they're going through a hard time right now. Is this the appropriate thing to do? And then if they do take the medication to keep a real close eye and to go back to the doctor and saying things are settling down now, let's reduce the dosage. Right. Uh, you know it you know that's part of parenting is is fighting for our kids and worrying about our kids and questioning you know anything that has to do with our kids and that's what kids from foster care don't have they don't have a parent exactly. an advocate somebody who's fighting for them and and challenging and and willing to get the doctor you know standing up to a a a, a diagnosis um uh, diagnosis or or a medication so yeah uh, you know the there, uh, this reminds me, I believe it was when uh, we were talking with Dr. Bruce Perry. He was talking about the issue, and he had some recent research, and he has sent that to me He was uh, because we have a, uh, a section. We try to be the bridge between the research community and the adoption professional and adoptive parent community, and I, I, we, have not, uh, we have not summarized that research. Um, and to be honest, I haven't even read it. We're backed up in that area, but... Um, I will try to add that. Uh, I want to move that up um, a bit because I'm now very curious. Um, he, uh, he sent me a couple of journal articles. I believe it was him. So anyway, we'll we will do that. I'm I'm curious. As well. And one more quick note, there's a sure. national movement to really reduce congregate care, group care, and we tend to over-medicate kids that are in group settings as well because oh. because we have to manage those groups, right? And so we tend to, not, not maliciously, but tend to over-medicate them. There's a great now national movement against really reducing um, uh, putting kids into group care settings, but rather individual family settings. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, I didn't yeah. really realize that it was uh, more in group. It makes very good sense what you're saying, yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, Debbie asked a question about openness in foster care adoptions. And by openness, we mean continuing contact after the adoption with uh, biological parents or siblings or grandparents. We certainly see from our community, as well as the research or the the reports I've been seeing, um, more and more uh, families are considering openness. Um, How common is it, or, or do you know, Rita? 
I agree. It's getting more common. And and really, you know, the adoptive family has every right to say yes or no. What's best for this child? Is it, and, and if at all possible, it is best to have children connected to their family of origin. If it's safe, if it's appropriate, if it doesn't create more trauma in the child's life, we all are homing pigeons at heart and we want to know where we came from. So if it's appropriate, it's always good for the family to try. But if it's not appropriate, if it causes that trauma, more, that child more trauma or stress, the the adoptive family has every legal right to say no not right now you know and and help the understand help the child understand why so i think it is becoming more common as as we realize grandparents are important to children or extended family members are important to children but only if it's safe and appropriate for the family and for the child as the parent, you are the parent, and you make those decisions. Uh, but I do say get right. educated first. Don't automatically assume that uh, openness will not be in your child's best interest, particularly if the child has had an ongoing relationship, even if it's not. it's been a relationship that has been um, not ideal. Um, so, yeah, we just had a, an interesting discussion on our group um, uh, with um, a parent being, uh, a foster parent being asked to, well, she was in the process of adopting, uh, to maintain contact with the child's a biological father who is in prison, and I believe it was in prison for life. Mm-hmm. And people were saying how it could be a very traumatic experience or whatever. And one of our community, um, had, uh, who was adopted herself, uh, did continue to visit her father in jail, and she was able to share that, in fact, it really, I didn't realize this, but she was saying jails, uh, prisons, not jails, prisons tend to go out of their way to make it a non-frightening place for children. And oh, uh, yeah. yeah, it was interesting. And she said it. She didn't. It was a, It was her life. It didn't seem unusual to her, and she didn't think in any way that it it harmed her. And she did think it benefited her um, to have a uh, relationship. But that's not for everyone. But that's just something to to throw out. Exactly. All right. Um, and this, uh, I, I, we have time for one last question, and I, I think you will enjoy this one. Uh, I think it's it's kind of a, um, a puff question, but uh, it gives you a, la- a chance to stand on your soapbox here. Uh, Allison writes, why are some kids considered unadoptable, and what are we doing to help children who age out of uh, foster care? Well, that gets at the heart of the myths of who we think these children are in foster care, right? We know from our research that a majority of Americans still believe that children are in foster care because they've done something wrong, because they're right. juvenile delinquents. Nothing could be farther from the truth. These children are have, have the same hopes and dreams and wishes that any child has. They've just gone through a really rough beginning to their life. Um, and so even some social workers believe these children are maybe too old. Maybe they've been through too much. Maybe it's better for them to age out. We take a stance here at the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption and say every child that has been freed for adoption deserves an adoptive family, must have an adoptive family, that unadoptable is a word we'd like to erase from the vocabulary that every child must must. It's our promise to them. The day they've been freed for adoption, our promise is we will find you a family. And when we don't do that for the 23,000 children who still age out of care every year, we've broken another promise to a child, and that's got to be unacceptable. So you're right. You put me right on my soapbox, but unadoptable <laughs> is unacceptable. <laughs> that is a slogan. I love that slogan. I should say a mantra, maybe a better way, uh, for the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption, and it is it is a great one. Thank you yeah. so much, Rita. Sorenham for being on today's show. Let me stop a moment and take uh, to thank a few more of our gold sponsors and to remind you that it is through their generous support that we can bring you this show as well as all the resources at Creating a Family. 
We have Nightlight Christian Adoptions with offices in California, Colorado, and South Carolina and adoption programs throughout the world, as well as a domestic infant program and their Snowflake Embryo Adoption Program. We also have Independent Adoption Center, whose mission is to provide open adoption placement and counseling to birth and adoptive families. They work in families. They work with families in all 50 states. And we have the Law Office of James Fletcher Thompson. They are a South Carolina firm committed to adoption and assisted reproductive law. I will say that they also do a fair amount of, of foster care adoption work as well. Uh, if you have enjoyed our show and you want to help us grow, please rate this podcast on iTunes. That Ratings are how iTunes uh, has rated us as their number one show. Uh, it is also uh, how they know to recommend this show to others. We would really appreciate it, and it's super easy to do. Just go into iTunes, type in the name Creating a Family, and it will pop right up. Or you can uh, just go to uh, the radio page of our website, creatingafamily.org slash radio show, and uh, click on iTunes, and uh, it will pop up there as well. If you want to participate in the discussions of the topic of this show, check out my blog tomorrow at creatingafamily.org slash blog. To get more information about Rita or the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption, you can go to their website, which is davethomasfoundation.org. Thank you so much for joining us today, and I will see you next week. Let's say you just bought a house. Bad news is, you're one step closer to becoming your parents. You'll proudly mow the lawn. Ask if anybody noticed you mowed the lawn. Tell people to stay off the lawn. Compare it to your neighbor's lawn. And complain about having to mow the lawn again. Good news is, it's easy to bundle home and auto through Progressive and save on your car insurance. Which, of course, will go right into the lawn. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company, affiliates, and other insurers. Discount not available in all states or situations. Let's say you just bought a house. Bad news is, you're one step closer to becoming your parents. You'll proudly mow the lawn. Ask if anybody noticed you mowed the lawn. Tell people to stay off the lawn. Compare it to your neighbor's lawn. And complain about having to mow the lawn again. Good news is, it's easy to bundle home and auto through Progressive and save on your car insurance. Which, of course, will go right into the lawn. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company, affiliates, and other insurers. Discount not available in all states or situations.